Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Tonight I want to return to the book of Exodus one more time. Um, We've just finished a series on prayer. Before that, a month or two ago, I was doing a series out of the early chapters of the book of Exodus, and I stopped it um, on Easter Sunday when we talked about the Passover in chapter 12 of Exodus. And I noted how the Passover found its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, our Passover lamb, as both Peter and Paul describe him. What I want to do this evening is return to that story just one more time and take a look at the Exodus story and link it with the long-awaited, much-prophesied new Exodus story that you and I are now part of. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, um, maybe you didn't hear the series, you can catch it on podcast if you like. Uh, But what I want to do is see how our Exodus story connects with theirs. It connects with what happened last week in our church on Sunday morning, and it connects with what will happen next Sunday as we gather for Pentecost. Last Sunday we had a water baptism. Next Sunday we're going to be praying for people for a refreshing touch of the Holy Spirit or perhaps the initial infilling of the Holy Spirit for some people. So the purpose of tonight's message is to kind of link those two and show you from the Exodus how they fit with us. At the end of chapter 12, after the Passover, after the slaying of the firstborn, uh, it says in verse 51 of chapter 12, it came to pass on that very same day the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies, or different translations of that last phrase, in military formation, by their divisions, in organized family groups or tribes. The pulpit commentary suggests they were a thoroughly organized and marshaled marshaled divisions resembling an army. And uh, it made me think about the Western Church, because this group of people, having been liberated through the Passover, came out marshaled and disciplined as one army, whereas by virtue of our incredible devotion to individualism, we come out much more as a rebel, much more like a crowd coming out of a test match or a concert, and we all head off in different directions, set free from the Passover to be our individualistic, atomistic, do-what-you-life, authentic freedom people. We're classic Westerners. And even as you speak to that, you feel, in my own heart, I feel the resistance. Like, what are you saying, Don? Are you going to try and make us into some kind of cult-like thing where we all have to be disciplined? And we've had enough of cults. Well, you know, we've got to find a balance somewhere between the over-investing in terms of discipline and cultish-like behavior and the individualistic... um, authentic freedom of Westerners. There's there's a middle ground somewhere. You know, ancient cultures understood corporiety in a way that we find very difficult to grasp. They moved as one in corporate solidarity in a way, as I say, that we find almost incomprehensible. But we have to understand biblically when God works deliverance in either the old Exodus or us as new Exodus people, we are not being set free to do whatever we want. We're not being set free so that we can be unattached. Freedom is not about some moral vacuum. It's actually freedom from one master and devotion to another. We are not free. We're not masterless. We swap one servitude for another. 
Actually, in the Hebrew, the servitude in Egypt, the same Hebrew words are used in servitude and worship to Yahweh. The massive difference is in the nature of the masters that we serve. But as Bob Dylan so aptly said, we've all got to serve somebody. We don't get to be unattached. Now, they are led out of Egypt, chapters 13 through 15. They come out. You know the story well. You've seen the Prince of Egypt or the Ten Commandments. Uh, you know, they come out. They come to the Red Sea. Pharaoh, never one to give up, decides that he's going to go after them and re-enslave them. So he gets his chariots and his army, and they pursue Israel. Israel are hemmed in by the Red Sea or the Red Sea, depending on what scholars you believe, and uh, they have nowhere to go. And then the Lord says to Moses, lift up your hands, and he does, and the waters part. Uh, Israel goes through on dry land. Egyptians presume to follow them, and God causes the water to return, and they're drowned. And chapter 15 is this amazing celebration with Miriam leading the woman with tambourines, singing the song of Moses. I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown in the sea. And that is the high point of deliverance in the Old Testament. It's the, it's the gold standard, and it's retold and recalled and remembered again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. Here's just two passages. Nehemiah chapter t uh, 9, verses 11 and 12 says, You divided the Red Sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. And then Psalm 78 verse 13, he divided the sea, let them pass through it, and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. They're just two of many passages that recall and retell that amazing story of deliverance. In both those passages that I read, and in many of the others, two things are highlighted. They pass through the waters, and they are led by, they are, they are immersed in and then led by a fiery cloud. With those two things in mind, let's jump over the centuries and come into the new exodus initiated by Jesus. The, the New Testament writers, both the gospel writers and the writers to the epistle, reference again and again, sometimes explicitly, sometimes more subtle allusions. Paul uses allusions to refer to the Exodus probably around 40 times at least, and some are very plain and unambiguous. So for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, therefore, Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You can't, that's, that's Passover, that's, that's Exodus. And then of course you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Obviously Exodus shaped and referring to Exodus starts off in the message translation. Remember our history friends and be warned. All our ancestors were led by the providential cloud and taken miraculously through the sea. They went through the waters in a baptism like ours, as Moses led them from enslaving death to salvation life. So Paul details the Exodus story for the church at Corinth, using it as a foundation for instruction, for encouragement, for warning. I want you to see a couple of things. He's writing to a Corinthian group who are mostly Gentiles. We are not talking about Jewish people here. 
but we're talking about Gentiles, but he describes the Exodus as our history and as our ancestors. And that might seem strange. You can imagine someone saying, excuse me, they're not my ancestors and it's not my history. I'm not Jewish. But Paul is insisting on the spiritual unity and shared history of those who believe in Messiah Jesus with the people of the Old Testament. He's saying we're all Abraham's descendants. We are the people of faith, the Israel of God, and their story is our story. Their ancestors are our ancestors. Their story is our story. We're in continuity with the past. This is the continuation of God's one story. And the deliverance from Israel, uh, of Israel from Egypt, Paul says, begins with a kind of baptism in water and in cloud. And then he states that you and I, we as New Exodus people, also begin our journey with a baptism like theirs in water and in cloud. So first of all, Paul likens the crossing of the Red Sea to the rite of Christian baptism, the thing that took place here at Gateway last Sunday. For Israel, the waters of the Red Sea closed the door to their old life of slavery in Egypt. That former life was finished and a new life began. And that's exactly how Paul describes Christian baptism in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. The message reads, so what do we do? Keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Well, didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? That's what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into a new country of grace, a new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we are lowered into the water, it is like the burial of Jesus. When we are raised up out of the water, it is like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in our new grace sovereign country. Out of an old life into a new one. And I don't want to be unkind or particularly controversial here, but I do think this is where our Western individualism comes to the fore. And as I hear people talking about baptism, water baptism, they talk about it as if it's something optional and something that actually only has to do with you and God, something that's completely individual. And it's reduced so often to an if-you-feel-led proposition. And you'll hear people say, well, you know, nothing much happens apart from getting wet. I mean, it is an outward symbol of what God does inwardly, but the inward thing is really what it's about. And it's between you and God. Well, let me just say it wasn't for Israel. For Israel, it was both corporate. It wasn't just between them and God. It was out of something corporate and into something corporate. And it was also very experiential for them, not just something symbolic. Can you imagine someone in Israel saying, well, Passover was fantastic. Went through the Passover. My life was spared because of the blood of the lamb that was shed for me. But you know what? The thought of passing through the Red Sea just doesn't really move me, and I think I'll give it a miss. Or maybe I'll put it off for another day. Had they said that, of course, they would have been stranded on the wrong side of the shore when the waters rolled back, and that would have been a real case of being on the wrong side of history. The Red Sea was the instance where Egypt's influence was finally broken. The grip on their lives was broken. And Paul says that the waters of baptism has the same effect for God's new Exodus people. You left that old country of sin behind. You came up out of the water. You entered a new country of grace, a new life in a new land with a new people.
When, when you read the scriptures, whether it's Romans 6 or Ephesians 4 or other passages, the New Testament often talks about an entity it calls the old man. Now, for many, many years, I read the scripture as the old man being something in me. And some translations actually translate that phrase, the old self. So I understood that there was an old self and a new self, and I had to crucify the old self and embrace the life of the new self. And it seemed like there's three people in here, the old one, the new one, and then there's me, and I've got to find out which one I'm going to align with. It gives a whole new meaning to a crowded house. Actually, the scripture, in the, it never actually says a new self or an old self. That's not the right word to translate that word. The Greek word is anthropos, and it's never translated self. It literally is a man, an old man. You say, well, what's the difference, Don? Well, the old man was a corporate old man, not just something in me, but something I was in. And it was in Egypt. The old man was the land of Egypt that I was in. And there's a massive difference between saying I was in the pool or saying the pool was in me. I was in the pool and Jesus crucified that old sphere to allow me to get out and make my way into a new corporate sphere. That one's called the old man. This is called the new man. That one's called the body of sin. This is called the body of Christ. And what Jesus does in saving us and us going through the waters of baptism is he lifts us out of that corporate sphere and places us in a new corporate sphere. And he says, now, you reckon that to be true. In Romans chapter 6, you reckon it to be true. Now, the word reckon there doesn't conjure up the idea of try as hard as you can to kill that old self within and be a new self. It's not talking about that. It's saying, reckon the fact that you've come out of that old sphere, you're now in a new sphere, and the, the Greek literally means calculate it. You don't have to struggle and work up your faith, it just calculate it. And all calculating does is make you aware of, of what is in fact true all along. Until you add up the money at the end of the day, you don't know what the day's takings are. When you calculate them, it doesn't add to the takings or take away from the takings. It just tells you what the takings were. When you calculate that you've come out of that sphere into this sphere, nothing changes except that's the reality. You've suddenly come to terms with what is true in the spiritual realm. And Paul is telling the Romans that Christ, through his death and resurrection, brought that old sphere that we lived and moved and had our being in to an end through the cross. And we calculate it, recognize it to be so. And as you go through the waters of Christian baptism, like the ancient Israelites crossing the Red Sea, it's a, it's a move out of that corporiety and into this one. And I want to tell you something else too. It's not a matter of just getting wet. It's not just an outward symbol. Something transpires. Let me read to you Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 in the Amplified Bible. Because people say to me, Don, I, I, you know, I understood baptism was just symbolic, an outward sign of an inward grace, not much more than getting wet as far as experience goes. Listen to this, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands, but in a spiritual circumcision performed by Christ by stripping off the body of the flesh, the old corrupt carnal nature with its passions and lusts. Thus you were circumcised 
when you were buried with him in your baptism, in which you were also raised with him to a new life through your faith in the working of God as displayed when he raised him up from the dead. When does this cutting away happen? It says when you were baptized. That to me indicates something more than just getting wet. There's something that transpires. The Moffat translation says, in him you've been circumcised with no material circumcision that cuts flesh from your body, but with Christ's own circumcision when you were buried with him in your baptism. So when people say, ah, it's just symbolic, it doesn't really matter. Friends, that's not what the scripture says. You go through Passover, through the Red Sea, something transpires in that that cuts off that old corporate man that you were part of and brings you into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says, you are baptized into the body, into another corporate entity. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10 are a warning. He says, listen, they all went through the sea, but only some then walked in the reality of what that was about. Some fell away. You, you read it. The, the, the mastery of sin and Pharaoh's bondage was broken. We step out of that and into a new reality. And Paul says, you need to live in the midst of that reality. Last week, uh, if you were here in the baptism in the morning, both Nick and Chris spoke about how baptism and the wedding ceremony are, are similar in some respects. What happens in both those ceremonies is our status is changed. For those of you who have experienced this, when you emerge from the church after your wedding ceremony, as exciting and wonderful as it is, you may not feel particularly ecstatic, or, or no, ecstatic's not the right word, because you might feel that, but you, won't, you might not necessarily feel anything as profoundly altered or changed. You know, it's the same you, you're excited and thrilled, but, but you're the same essentially as you went into the building. However, you aren't. A change of status has occurred that you are now called to conform to. Promises have been made, vows have been spoken, and you're not, fu you're not free to function as a single person any longer. Something has changed in terms of your status. Now, of course, you can, and some do, shirk and shrug off those responsibilities and pretend that they haven't got a new sta status and tragedy and heartbreak await for those who behave like that. When you go through baptism, vows are made. Something changes, something is cut away. And the scripture says now, you reckon that to be true and live according to that new status. Now, thankfully, we aren't abandoned at that point. You know, it doesn't just, the scripture doesn't just go west, young man, do your best, good luck. We go through the waters of baptism, we are then immersed in a cloud. Something is there, as it were, to empower us to now walk in that new status. In this commentary on 1 Corinthians, the scholar Gordon Fee says about the cloud, this is a reference to the presence of God in Israel's midst, comparable to the Spirit for Christians. Passover, the blood shed for us, through the waters of baptism, immersed into the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. I, I, my deep conviction is that Christian initiation involves three things. It involves conversion and repentance. It involves being baptized in water. And it involves receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you go to many evangelicals and say, what must I do to be saved? They'll often take you to Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. End of story. The rest is add-on. Add 
you need to pray that prayer. You know, the, the, the Romans road we all learned about many years ago. Get them to pray the prayer. Once they've prayed the prayer, they're in. I was saying this morning, I remember an extreme version of that with a zealous young um, Jesus revolutionary in those days. He believed that any, all you needed was to get people to pray the prayer. So he came up with this novel evangelistic strategy. He, he had a track that had the prayer and he would go up to someone and say, I've got really bad eyesight, would you read it for me? And of course they would read it, he'd say, read it out loud. And when they read the words of the prayer, he delightfully announced that they were now Christians because they'd said the words. Not quite what the scripture is talking about. See, Peter, uh, Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost. People were moved by his preaching and they said, what must we do to be saved? What, what, what do we do? And Peter said three things. Verse 37 is the question, and this is Acts chapter 2. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Here's the answer. Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of, your, of the Holy Spirit. Peter answers the question, what must I do to be saved by giving them three things? Repent, change your mind and purpose and accept the will of God instead of, uh, instead of rejecting it. And that amounts to the same thing as believe in Romans chapter 10. Repentance and belief and faith are two sides of the one coin that we call conversion. So repent and believe. Number two, be baptized. It's not an add-on. Jesus said in Mark chapter 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. You go, oh my goodness, Don, are you suggesting to me that if we aren't baptized, we aren't saved? Actually, no, I'm not saying that. The thief on the cross um, dying beside Jesus was clearly going to be with him in paradise. You, you, you know the interaction that took place between them. And he couldn't obviously be baptized. I would like to say, however, the normal pathway of obedience according to Jesus is that you, you are baptized. Exceptional circumstances where baptism isn't possible or exceedingly difficult shouldn't give people like you and I license to be careless about our obedience. Jesus expected that his disciples would follow both his example, for he was baptized by John, and his teaching. He said, you be baptized. And then thirdly, Peter says, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now that raises all kinds of questions for people and people say to me, Don, I thought that when you repent and believe that the Holy Spirit comes into your life at that point in time, are you suggesting to me that he doesn't? And as I said this morning, I'm going to sound a bit like a politician here, but yes and no is what I want to say. And let me explain that. When we open our hearts to Christ, yes, the Holy Spirit does come to dwell within us. But I would want to suggest that isn't actually what Peter is talking about here when he says, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I don't think I'd get any argument from any of you if I was to suggest that the disciples were saved before Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost that they were true believers, that they were uh, followers of Christ, and if they'd have died before the day of Pentecost, they would have gone to be in God's presence. We, we recognize that they were saved, and if you're not quite sure, go to John chapter 20, where the resurrected Jesus stands in the midst of the disciples and breathes on them and says, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. So they were believers, the Holy Spirit had come to dwell in their hearts, and yet the day of Pentecost was to come. This encounter with the Holy Spirit's power lay ahead of them. And I think that's what Peter is referring to when he says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not convinced, Don, you say. All right, go to Acts chapter 8. Philip is preaching to the Sumerians. 
they believe in his preaching. And verse 12 says, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. They believed and they were baptized. Verse 14. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Had they received the power of the Holy Spirit? Apparently not. The apostles came down from Jerusalem to pray for them that they could receive the power of the Holy Spirit. You go... Through Passover and the blood of the Lamb shed for you, you go through the waters of baptism and there is an encounter in the immersion of the cloud, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 19, it says in verse 1, Apollos was ministering in Corinth. Paul traveled on through the regions of Turkey until he arrived in Ephesus where he found a group of 12 followers of Jesus. These people believed in Jesus. They were following Christ. Now, they're understanding was incomplete because Paul says to them, yeah, there's something not quite right here. I mean, it doesn't say that, but he's, he's figuring that something doesn't quite add up. And he says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? Now, if, if you receive the Holy Spirit at conversion, and that's all that happens, this question is nonsensical. It's a question that might as well be phrased, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you received the Holy Spirit? Paul is saying, yeah, I know you're believers. Actually, they hadn't been water baptized, so it says Paul baptized them in water, and then he laid hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. It says in verse 5 through 7, there's the account of this, this Passover where the blood of the lamb is shed for you. You paint that on the doorposts of your life by faith and say, Jesus died for my sins. I know that. Then there is water baptism. Not an add-on extra. It's when the influence of Egypt is closed off and something is cut away and circumcised off from you and then you step into the cloud where you are empowered for life going forward. And, and it's my deep conviction that we need all three of those things. Now you say, well, Don, this, I still find this really confusing. If you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe, how can you have more of somebody that you already have? Now, there's a philosophical knot for you. Isn't that an oxymoron? Well, rather than try and unpack that as a theological or philosophical knot, ask another question that's perhaps more profound. Not, can I have more of the Holy Spirit, but could he possibly have more of me? All right? Um, Maybe as we step into the cloud, it's not so much that we haven't had something, but what we had breaks loose. You know, when the flood in Noah's day came, it says the fountains of the great deep were opened up and the heavens opened from above. It came up from the ground and it came down from the sky. You know, the baptism in the Holy Spirit can be something like that. The Holy Spirit already residence in your heart by faith in Jesus suddenly breaks loose from, a, from inside and he comes down from above. You say, well, it's still confusing. Can, how can you do both? Well, he can. I know it's a mystery, but he can have more of you. And essentially, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is saying, you can have more of me. I want to be empowered. I want to live in the power of that cloud. So in closing, can I suggest to you that just as the Israelites experienced Passover, walked through the Red Sea, and were immersed in the cloud, 
we too, as new Exodus people, need to commit our lives to the Passover lamb whose blood was shed for us. We need to pass through the waters of baptism and we need to receive the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. For the people of Israel to pass to experience Passover but not leave Egypt by passing through the sea would have been stupidity. To pass through the sea but not be immersed in the cloud would have compromised the journey ahead. They needed all three aspects and I think we do too. Last Sunday morning 11 people passed through the waters here at Gateway, the waters of baptism. We'll be having another baptismal service in the not-too-distant future. And if you haven't been water baptised, the purpose of this is not to make you feel guilty, but to stir you to obedience. It isn't an added extra. It's part of the initiation package. And if you haven't gone through the waters, can I suggest, please pray about it, think about it, follow through on the scriptures. Next Sunday as Pentecost and we'll be praying for people sometimes some, some people for the first time other people for the umpteenth time for a, a new refreshing touch of the Holy Spirit on their lives and if you haven't been immersed in the cloud or you say well golly I, I'm, I'm not sure if I have um, come C- come and, and make yourself available and just simply say Holy Spirit have more of me I I want you to have everything that I have. I've set myself to follow Jesus, and um, I want all you've got for me. I don't. I don't want to join the army and just get a uniform. You know, I mean, you sign up, you get a uniform, and then you stand there doing nothing, thinking, "Is this? Is this everything?" You want to. You know, they want to put some um, some anti-tank weapons in your hand. I'm going to put an AK-47 in your hand because there's a battle to be fought. It's not just about the uniform. It's being empowered to be everything that Christ wants you to be. You know, the whole Exodus story finishes with worship. From chapter 25 through 40, it's about the tabernacle being built, a place where God dwells among his people, where his people worship him. And from their mission, the whole world sees something that is different. Say, so Don, do you really believe that's possible? Well, you know, after, after being through the last few weeks when the church pretty much worldwide, but certainly in New Zealand and Australia, has been dragged through the papers and the courts, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I despair. And I think, Lord, we're supposed to be your people, and the witness that we are supposed to bear to the world has been so tarnished sometimes, and I'm not pointing the finger at anybody, but sometimes through our own duplicity, hypocrisy, and foolishness. Would you do something in us, Lord? Could we be a people filled with the Spirit, a worshipping people, a people given to the service of our fellow men, that people looked on and said, Man, there's something different about that. I would like to be part of that. I'd like to, I'd like to be embraced by that, immersed by that. That was always God's purpose. I don't think it's changed. I think he wants us to be a new Exodus people, out from Egypt, through the water, immersed in the cloud, worshipping and serving. That's my dream for Gateway, and I hope you share it. Would you stand with me? Father, thank you that we can gather. Thank you for the power of your word, the power of your Holy Spirit. 
We don't want to just um, be the same, Lord. We long to be changed. We sang before, come, start a revival, and you can begin it in us. You can begin it in me. Lord, and as we lift our hearts with our hands before you, we simply say, have your way, blessed Holy Spirit. Help us to be the people you want us to be, empowered, embraced, um, and thrust forth into a world that desperately needs light and hope. Jesus, would you work in us to, to establish your own purposes, to um, receive glory. Lord, we long that you would look at us as your people, see the travail of your own soul, and be satisfied. So, blessed Holy Spirit, come. Have your way, because we pray it in Jesus' name, and for his sake and glory. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.